Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. In today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Jonathan Ward, who sat down with me last year when we discussed his book, China's Vision of Victory. A lot has happened in the last almost 12 months since we last met. Dr. Ward, thanks for joining us. I'm so pleased you're here. Thank you, Dan. It's great to be back. So can you tell me a little bit about, so you wrote that book and some things have happened in the last 18 months since you wrote it. What's your reaction to what's happened in the last 18 months, given the fact you wrote this book and you've done so much work on these issues? I mean, I wrote China's Vision of Victory because I was genuinely worried that America was not going to understand China's goals and plans. And if we continue to lose time on that, I thought that we might reach a point of no return and that, in fact, China could succeed at fulfilling what it sees as its true goal of becoming the dominant power and exerting its influence worldwide in every possible way. I wrote the whole thing in a big hurry in 2017 and got it out as soon as I could. And so much has happened since then. I mean, I think we really have seen the awakening of the U.S. government on the problem of China. And, you know, even more importantly, I think that this competition with China and the understanding that this is an existential contest, that's going to become the driving factor in American foreign policy for certainly the next decade and probably for the foreseeable future until we've found a way to put a stop to this problem. I've been very heartened by what has happened in the past 18 months in terms of the changes in U.S. foreign policy, and still there's a lot that needs to be done. So I think we're in the process of watching an awareness become uh, a response, and, and that's what counts. Wow. Okay. We've had this coronavirus. Tell me what your reaction is to the coronavirus, given what, that you wrote this book. I think coronavirus has uh, you know, added a new, it's sort of an accelerant to this problem. I mean, I think it might have been an abstract question. I mean, what does China really seek? You know, how, how does the South China Sea affect us in an American household? You know, how does you know, the Belt and Road affect anybody? So what? These are distant you know, abstractions. But suddenly everybody is living a vastly changed life because of China's system. I mean, because of the cover-up, because of the inherent sort of need to um, hide information from the world, manipulate information. And then, you know, fundamentally, we're in a, a period in which there is no household in the world, in, in a sense, that's not been affected by what, you know, emerged from China's system. So, you know, wherever one places the blame, I mean, we're living in a reality here where clearly the origins of this situation are in the People's Republic of China and from the Communist Party, you know, its mistakes and fabrications. And I think that just means that the closest thing we had to the problem of China being in the American household was maybe the NBA's kerfuffle over Hong Kong last year. And now we have something on a far larger scale. So that's very important, I think, in setting a broader foundation whereby this awareness of China goes beyond the U.S. government to the American public and ultimately creates the situation for, you know, real national will. Are we in a Cold War with China? You know, I wish there were a better word for it. But as a historian, I think that there's a reasonable argument that we're dealing with the same actors again. The Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China have now become the Russian Federation and the People's Republic of China. And once again, they, their systems are opposed to ours and their, their power is expanding. But most importantly, the only way to turn the tide of victory and for America to win this competition is to recognize 
that this is going to be about economic power. We have not had a challenger in the past that had the, the sheer economic and industrial potential that China does today. And if they succeed in moving forward in their strategies on that level, if they actually surpass us in real terms GDP, I think that's a turning point and we would never recover. So we have to realize that this is not principally driven by ideology. I mean, it has those elements, but the heart of this issue is about who is going to have the bigger economy and the ability to resource a true global strategy. So if we focus there, we'll realize it's different, but I think there are many good lessons in the Cold War. You had done a lot of research on China and India in your book. There was this recent border clashes between China and India. What are they fighting about on this border? Where does this conflict come from? Right. It was an extraordinary thing to see happening. I mean, it was as though my Oxford PhD thesis was coming to life on international news networks here. I mean, my doctorate was the study of the strategic thinking on um, in the Communist Party behind their war with India in 1962. And you really have an unresolved border. I mean, it's one of the longest land borders in the world, and it's never been resolved. So tensions, I think, have been mounting recently as each side improves its ability to build infrastructure. And the China-India relationship has also been in a hard spot as there's more strategic competition in the Indian Ocean. But I think the true significance is less the clashes themselves and so much as what it means for the broader relationships. You know, this is the first use of China's military against a neighbor in the 21st century. It's the first blood that's been spilled by the People's Liberation Army. And this is a, a country that fought many of its neighbors in the 20th century, from Korea to the US in the Korean Peninsula, to India itself, to Vietnam, to the USSR. And Xi Jinping and other Chinese leaders have made absolutely clear that they see the use of force as central to what they call the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. So I think we witnessed that for the first time. And the consequences are that China is losing its relationship not only with the United States, but also with India. So the world's two largest democracies. So if we think about China's entire quest for power happening in the context of economic globalization and the access to world markets, the access to intellectual property, to capital, to all these things, and yet their political relationships are breaking down with both the leading democracy in the emerging world and the leading democracy in the developed world. You have to ask yourself, you know, just how successful can their strategy B, and also to what lengths will they go to preserve their strategic initiative? You know, they've done some fairly audacious things in the last 12 months. They had a border clash with India. They've cracked down on Hong Kong, breaking in essence an agreement, a 50-year agreement, 23 years into it. So do you worry that they're going to try and do something crazy as it regards to Taiwan? Well, I don't think they would think of it as crazy. I mean, unfortunately for the rest of us, you know, this is a country that I think People forget how comfortable they are, you know, pushing the boundaries across their entire region. We saw this in the founding decades of the People's Republic of China when, you know, just out of the Chinese Civil War, they were sending veterans into the Korean Peninsula. They were cycling those veterans into Vietnam to fight the French. I mean, Mao essentially had a, a vital role in planning Dien Bien Phu. And they did this right on top of um, sending troops into Tibet and also preparing for an invasion of Taiwan. So this is a country that has always, you know, worked its frontiers militarily in addition to that diplomatically. So I think many people think, are they taking on too much? And I think they're actually quite in their comfort zone here. As to Taiwan, that would be a different level because it would test the limits of the US and Asia. So I don't know that they'd push that far. But, you know, I think we're seeing a China that's testing newfound strength rather than realizing its limits. So I guess the question I'd have is, do you see China being humbled by the coronavirus situation? There's been a 20 or 25% whack on the approval of China in the United States, across the board, Republican, Democrat, Independent. 
I've asked different countries, like, do they see this in other countries, whether it's the UK or India? Now, I think in the case of India, because of this border clash, I'm guessing whatever goodwill Indians had about China have now probably gone. I'm hoping that it's going to make it very, very difficult for Huawei to continue to operate in any kind of normal way. I keep hoping that they've taken some kind of public diplomacy. This has been a public diplomacy catastrophe for them, but maybe that's just me wishful thinking. What, what's your take on this? What kind of implications all this coronavirus has had for them outside of the United States, meaning, you know, in other parts of Asia, Europe, et cetera? I think in some ways it's actually done the opposite. I think it's reinforced their confidence. I mean, look, they're a country that is going to grow this year that's now posting better manufacturing numbers and all the rest of it than the rest of the world. So as we all head into recession and pile debt on top of ourselves, and they do that too, of course, you're talking about a country that considers itself to be in a pretty strong position relative to the rest of the world. I mean, you still look at international shipping and manufacturing and all that and all the industrial indicators. And China does seem to be not worse off than the rest of the world. And that for them is an advantageous position. I mean, we still see people telling us they're going to surpass the U.S. economically, potentially even sooner because of coronavirus as we head into recession. This, I think, doesn't You know, they consider themselves to have responded well, better than the rest of the world. Their diplomacy, I think, is focused around that. And I don't necessarily think that's accurate, but I think we have to remember what we're dealing with. I mean, in the same way that we hoped that engagement would create partnership, we can't expect that COVID, you know, and they've declared a people's war on it, all the rest, is going to create humility. They're talking about seizing the initiative and such. It's no accident that they've, you know, pushed their troops into India and taken Hong Kong and done all the rest of it under the cover of a pandemic that's killed half a million people worldwide and put the United States, you know, not only our economy, our education system, and we are under system shock here. And, and that is something that I think they're watching very carefully. All this is obviously terrible for everybody, including for China and disruptive. But at the end of the day, in the net is that China comes, comes out of this in, in a better place, is what you're saying. Potentially. I think that there are those over there that see that. I don't see humility. I see confidence. You read Chinese, right? Yeah. And you read the press. What is the press saying about this? Like, this is go for this, grab everything you can right now. Is that what it's saying in the press right now? A lot is concentrated on, you know, the relationship with the United States and the deteriorations there and such. But, you know, on COVID, I think it has, you know, there, there was this interesting narrative about turning crisis into initiative and just sort of other pieces of that that I think reminds one of how their strategic thinking works in different ways. And, you know, fundamentally, there's still this set of goals and desires for the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. And I don't think that's gone away at all. And as for global diplomacy, let's not forget, they are aiming to take apart the world order as it exists. I mean, what greater blow has there been? So, you know, for them, it certainly created certain weaknesses, but I think it also weakens the international system that they themselves are looking to subvert. I don't know who their friends are. India is talking about like, pulling out the telecom wires, or they're saying something like that, you know, as a result on Amazon in India, you have to now place your product, the source of origin, which says to me, there's like a significant China boycott in India. If they don't have India on side and they don't have us on side, and I'd like to believe the Europeans have woken up and smelled the coffee here on the problem. You know, people talk about global swing states. I think there's going to be swingy regions. I think what you're really going to see is the coming apart of the industrial democracies, OECD, and then whatever coheres around the concept of the Belt and Road. And really what we should be concerned about is that China is able to create some kind of economic Eastern bloc from Southeast Asia to Africa, where we don't have sufficient economic engagement or diplomatic interest to take that all seriously. So I do think that the OECD and the Belt and Road are going to start to split. It has 
hasn't happened yet. Let's not forget how you know excited our Fortune 500 and you know investment institutions and such have have been about China. They continue to be. So um, you know certain concerns arise. I mean, supply chains, all the rest of it. But I mean, many people are still looking to the China market. So I think policy may get this, but economic engagement continues apace. And until we really have a strategy that begins to shut off China's ambitions and to work across the democratic world towards this, I think we're not yet fully grasping the subject and working with the subject. So a year ago, Dan, we talked about the need for the democracies to come together on infrastructure, on economics, on commerce, on all of that. And I think the speech last week from Pompeo talking about the Alliance for Democracies, I mean, you know, you and I were having this conversation last year and how that really is the vital counter. So what I think matters fundamentally to this is the U.S. has got to remain the world's leading economy. We've got to unite the democracies around this problem. And also we've got to get our businesses, CEOs, and investment banks to start playing on the side of the U.S. interest. That's going to be the hardest part. The democracies are going to start to get together. I think we're seeing that. But there was a time when American industry and American government worked together to win huge strategic problems from the Second World War to the Cold War. And right now, we're not there yet. And until we are, you know, China still has very important, you know, abilities to play us in this global chess match. So in some ways, the conversation we had last year that the Trump administration has come around to what we were discussing a year ago. Yeah, I think in certain ways, it's the obvious thing to do. I mean, you have to take the alliance system and let that be the place in which you're creating your coalition. And it's going to have to become more of an economic alliance system. You know, not only the military, but we have to be working together economically. And fundamentally, I think the, the path is economic containment of China. You start going after their state-owned enterprises, their banks, their little pieces of that here and there. But I think in a much larger and more strategic effort must be made. And then you're going to have to restrict engagement across strategic industries by our own companies. And that includes anything involved in China's civil military fusion or their human rights abuses. And that accounts for a whole lot of the Chinese economy, unfortunately. But fundamentally, you've got to slow them down. You can't let them become this industrial and technological powerhouse with, as Xi Jinping said, an infinite stage for their era. I mean, that's his goal is you build up as much economic and industrial power as you can and you just start going global with it. And we got to stop that. Great. Well, look, Jonathan, I'm so pleased that you're remaining engaged on these issues. You're really an important voice on the U.S.-China relationship. You've done some really important research as a historian. Let me just ask you one last question. Do you think ultimately China's going to achieve its vision of victory? No, I don't think they will. But the most important ingredient is going to be effort. It's what we do. It's ours to decide. We play a role in this. Left to their own? Yes, I think they could. But if America is able to respond to this moment, to do the right strategy, to assemble the right coalition and make the hard choices, we will win and we have to. There's no other way. All right, Jonathan, this is great. I hope you're going to put out another book. We need your voice. Thank you so much, Dan. It's great to be back. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, the Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog 